welcome back to another episode of Anthology of Horror, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host and your narrator, Spring Hill Jack. And today I'm going to be bringing you a collection of different horror themes from places that you probably haven't heard as many stories as you should from. Um, I guarantee that these stories are horrifying and they'll chill you to the bone. Hmm? So Antarctica is touted as the most haunted place in the world. I don't know if you guys knew that. This number is based on the number of ghosts per capita, but with a population fluctuating between 1,000 people that live there in the winter to 4,000 during the summer, it's roughly one disturbed spirit for every nine people that inhabit the desolate continent, which comparatively to the uh, mainland is a considerable amount. The spirits of explorers, scientists, and tourists are believed to wander the icy wasteland and the abandoned buildings, which there is no shortage of, they, they used to inhabit during, during their lifetimes. Uh, whether by plane crash or exposure to extreme temperatures, many have involuntarily included themselves among the Antarctic ghosts. Alright, so this is the first story. It's called The, the Ghost Ship Jenny. The schooner Jenny left port in 1823, and it was never seen again until a whaling ship named Hope allegedly made a horrifying discovery in 1840. According to the crew of the Hope, an ice wall broke open, and the trapped Jenny was released from the wall's icy grip. Sailor noticed, sailors aboard the Hope noticed the people on the Jenny's deck, but when they boarded, they realized that the people had been frozen solid, frozen in state. The captain of the Hope ventured deeper into the Jenny and found the Jenny's captain frozen in perfect tableau while writing in his journal. His last entry is bone chilling, May 4th, 1823. No food for 71 days. I'm the only one left alive. Allegedly, Hope's crew took the log but left the Jenny and its cargo to sail on as a ghost ship. Next one is Robert Falcon Scott and some of his team still haunt their hut. In the early 1900s, the race was to be the first one to reach the geographic South Pole. In 1911, British explorer Robert Falcon Scott put together a team and set out on the Terra Nova expedition. When they reached Antarctica, they built a hut where some men stayed while the rest of the team attempted to reach the South Pole. The expedition did not go completely as planned. A rival reached the pole about a month before his team. Scott and the other four men he had selected to join him on the expedition died on their way back to the hut. Frostbite, gangrene, and starvation plucked them off one by one. On March 2, 1912, Scott recorded his final journal entry, which said, Every day we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away, but outside the door of the tent remains a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker. Of course, and the end cannot be far. It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write more. R. Scott. Last entry. For God's sake, look after our people. <laughs> Scott's hut still stands, and the people who have visited said that they felt very uneasy and uncomfortable. 
voices and footsteps have been heard, and some people felt like they were being watched. There's also a cross placed close to the hut in memory of the three men from Shackleton Ross's Sea Expedition, who also used that cabin but died nearby. Perhaps the two teams joined up after death. The word is also that there's hundreds of plane crash victims and they haunt a specific island called Ross Island. Because Antarctica became a frequent tourist destination in the 70s. Tourists booked day trip flights from New Zealand and enjoyed a leisurely aerial view of the harsh icy continent. One such trip turned fatal due to the low visibility and a pilot error. The plane crashed into the side of Mount Erebus, Erebus? Crashed into the side of a mountain at 300 miles per hour and the impact killed all 257 people. Holy fuck. The corpses were stored at McMurdo Station, which was an American base on Antarctica's Ross Island. And many visitors, visitors to the site believe the ghosts of the victims are still hanging around. People claim to hear voices, see short trails of unexplained footprints, and feel strange presences. One McMurdo Station worker remembers, As I entered, something was weird. I took a couple of steps, and the hair on the back of my head stood on end. There were footsteps upstairs. Undeniably footsteps. A slow cadence of footsteps. I froze. Went from the back of the building to the front. There was nobody upstairs. <laughs> Spirits of the members of the Endurance Expedition slammed doors in a wordy hut. The wordy hut is named after James Wordy, who was the chief scientist on Sir Ernest Shackleton's 1914-17 through 17 Endurance Expedition. The shack was built in 1947, after the previous building on the site was destroyed. It is no longer used, but is considered a historic site and a monument. After hearing several reports of a haunting, paranormal researchers from Destination Truth spent a night exploring the area. To make things even more creepy, the hut was still set up with furniture and canned food, as if the explorers from the 20th century were still there. Members of the team heard the frantic flipping of a light switch and the slamming of the doors while staying in a hut. Items like jar lids fell off shelves on their own. One member of the crew noted he felt a presence, and the rest of the team nodded in silent agreement. How chilling. I think it would be important to stay frosty while you're out there. So that was Antarctica. Spooky place. So it would seem. So next, I have a pretty decent collection of fully grown and functioning adults that describe imaginary friends they have or had that may not have been fake. Imaginary friends are, for many people, a childhood rite of passage. I mean, I remember when mine disappeared. Giving them the first true friends and confidants. But be careful who you make friends with, for some creepy imaginary friends come back to you as an adult, if they were even your friends in the first place. This, this whole concept freaks me the fuck out. Though most people write off imaginary friends as simply products of an overactive imagination, the way some adults describe their past imaginary friends suggests something else may have been about. Imaginary friends, like many things for children, aren't always benign, as you would assume they would be. Makes all the hair on the back of my neck stand up. 
whether their imaginary friend was a departed spirit, malevolent entity from the unknown. Listening to adults describe their imaginary friends is always entertaining, but definitely unnerving at times. These alleged true Reddit stories go into detail about creepy imaginary friends people have had, at least as kids. If you can relate, you may want to think back on how imaginary your friend really was. So, this one is from Blue Thunder 6. I was an imaginative kid, and I had several imaginary friends. You fucking whore. But my first one was different than the rest. You see, everyone remembers their first time. When I was two or three, I had an imaginary friend named Karen. Conservative. My whole family knew about her and I, and I would insist she be treated like a real person. <laughs> Unlike my later fantasy folk, my mom would hear me carrying on whole conversations with her and was always a little curious when I had come up with the whole thing, or where I had come up with the whole thing. It seemed more complex than toddlers usually pretend. I genu genuinely thought she was a real person and that people were being inconsiderate and not by not acknowledging her. Sometimes to humor me, my parents would, out of the blue, be like, well, hello, Karen, and I'd glare at them and reply that she's not here right now. We ended up moving, and once we did, Karen was never mentioned again. Since I was young, I don't remember that much about it, just a warm feeling like an old friend. Oh, My mom asked me about it when I got older, and I told her I could confident, confidently remember making up my other imaginary friends, Howard the Duck and his girlfriend Chuckles, but not Karen. She told me she always wondered if she was seeing something that she wasn't, but no harm. What? She told me she always wondered if I was seeing something that she wasn't, but no harm ever came out of it, so she didn't worry. Now I'm 30, and was reading an article about a case that changed how you could report a missing person. And as I read it, I realized it was sort of near where I used to live, and there was a girl named Karen that had gone missing. Bullshit. I didn't think much of it. It was a city, crime happens, and as I read further, I found that Karen's murderer had buried the body in the town in which I had lived. At that point, not expecting much, but rather curious, I texted my mom for the address of our old house, and as it turns out, she was murdered, then buried about an aisle and a half from our old home. Yes, yeah, sure, sure. Now, I'm not saying that I'm 100% sure that this Karen was my Karen, and the whole thing that happened a little over a decade before my parents had even bought the house, my mom had never even heard of the case, and it was a long time out of the headlines. I've yet to find a picture of the girl, and sometimes wonder if I would recognize her, even though she died before I was even born. Regardless, the whole thing was a sad story. The young lady didn't deserve such an awful end. If she was my Karen, it's even sadder, because the spirit lingered and only had a toddler for a friend. You, you, you had me for a minute. Had me for a minute. Lost me towards the end there. This one is about Unimaginary Sarah by Lego Argus. Not imaginary per se. I used to break into houses as a little kid. What? I lived in a really run-down part of town with a huge amount of foreclosures and empty houses. So I would pry off the window screens, and if the houses were unlocked, I would crawl inside them. I was probably five or six. Well, in one abandoned house, there was always this young Hispanic girl hanging out in the upstairs bathroom. I would go up there, and she would talk to me, and we'd play tag and hide-and-seek and truth or dare and hide the rainbow roll. I'd always invite her home for dinner, but she said she couldn't leave because she had to wait for her mom to come home. I guess it made 
sense to me at the time, but when I think back, there was nothing in the house. Not even silverware in the kitchen drawers. The carpets were all mildewed and it was seriously empty. I don't think she was really there. She said her name was Sarah, although I don't ever think she told me her last name. She always wore these cut-off tank top shirts. I really can't remember what of, but I'm fairly certain they were graphic tees. And always these pastel orange spandex shorts. She had a bob-cut hair, and um, she was missing a couple of teeth in the front of her mouth. She was a little chubby, especially in the stomach. That's it. Uh, It doesn't tell a very good story. Next one is called Tom Followed Him Everywhere. As soon as I could start speaking, I had an imaginary friend. I called him Tom. I would set places at the table for him, talk to him during long bus rides, ask his opinion about things, and basically treat him like an invisible brother, even though I had three other siblings. I don't remember any of this. My mom grew concerned that I wasn't developing socially, so she took me to a child's shrink. This I remember. They asked me about Tom and why I saw him, if I saw anyone else in the same manner, and asked me to sort out some stuff with puzzles. I stopped talking to Tom after that. Now fast forward 10 years. After her divorce, my mom gets really into spirituality and religion. I thought it was a load of horse shit until she played the recording of a particular psychic reading session with me. Psychic was new and really interested in me for some reason. She said she saw a young, dark-haired man watching over me. She asked if the name Tim meant anything. She asked if I was a Gemini. She asked if I had a large birthmark on my side, all of which was true. Except for Tim. The psychic inferred that Tom slash Tim and I were twins in a past life. The birthmark I carry is apparently how he died and came to watch over me in this life. As a child, I could see him and interact with him but I lost that gift as I was conditioned not to see him. I'm skeptical of such horseshit, but hearing the psychic pinpoint such information made the hair rise on the back of my neck, so I guess if he is watching out for me, thanks, twin bro. (laughs) Next one is about Charlie. I had one when I was four. His name was Charlie. My parents always asked what he looked like, and I always said, a little man. He went everywhere with me, a single child at the time. It was to the point that I would cry if my mom sat on where Charlie was eating lunch. When we moved away, Charlie didn't come with us. My mom asked where he was and told her that he was going to be a mannequin at Sears. What the fuck? Years later, we found out a little person had committed suicide in our house before we moved in. You sure? I am sure that's true. They fucking lose me when they try to make it scary. Like, it's fucking scary enough. (sighs) Almost had me. So as if Michigan wasn't scary enough just by itself, these are 13 fascinating and terrifying stories of something called the Michigan Dogman. Now, before you laugh and turn this off, this shit is fucking terrifying. I've read stories about this. This is, like, shit you hear at truck stops. I, um... Oh, man. I've heard stories... I I used to ride motorcycle all over the place, and, um... I've heard quite a few stories from, I don't know if I'd call them credible, but from enough people at different spots in the country that this makes my my hair stand up pretty quick. This stuff's fucking terrifying. Uh, call it a dog, man. Call it a shapeshifter. Call it whatever you want. Call it Bigfoot. I don't fucking care. It's still, it's scary. This scares me. This is one of those things that keeps me awake in the middle of the night when, uh, you know, I'm 
it's it's like skinwalkers for me. You guys know I have a thing with that. It fucking freaks me out. Okay, so without any further ado, maybe I'll do an episode on these separately too, because these are good ones. What makes the urban legend of the Michigan Dogman so scary is that it's possible. There have been far more sightings than Bigfoot, who's practically the poster child for cryptozoology. While there's talk of supernatural origin, there are also scientific animal-based theories for this creature's existence as well. Dogman sightings began in Michigan. Then they spread with descriptions varying slightly, but not much. But the core characteristics remained intact. This can be expected with any growing, migrating, or evolving species. Dogman sightings usually occur deep in the forest, around logging camps, or out on isolated roads in the middle of the night, almost as a given. The mythical beast of the backwoods folklore went mainstream in 87 after the release of the song The Legend, written by Traverse City radio DJ Steve Cook. Cook pulled lyrics from Dogman Encounters, and soon more people reported their sightings. But what are these eyewitnesses actually seeing? Is it hysteria or a real creature? Let's explore the history of this cryptid and the various horrifying encounters people have had with it. It may be the Michigan dogman that chases motorcyclists while they're riding. In the fall... (laughs) It's not. In the fall of 1986, outside of Manistee, Michigan, Ray Greenway was driving home from Manistee Army Recruiting Station. It was late at night, and he noticed something in the darkened field beside him. His headlights were reflecting off what appeared to be eyes, and they were much too high off the ground to be a deer. Suddenly, the unidentifiable creature began running towards him and made an incredible leap, clear across the two-lane road. There's no animal it could have been. I know this was not a deer, Ray later later recalled. He went on to describe its yellow eyes and the impossible leaping height. I do remember that I saw both eyes as if it were looking at me the whole time. That, along with the leaping, is something I'll never forget. Something that made all of the hair stand up on the back of my neck. In 87... Oh, shit. 1887. The first known encounter was documented in Wexford County, Michigan. Two lumberjacks were out in the woods doing completely heterosexual man shit. When they spotted a creature, they described as having the body of a man but the head of a dog. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Huh? Yeah, it fucking does. I hate when they all tie in like this. It makes it way more credible. Other sightings began to trickle in through the upper peninsula of Michigan locals found dog tracks in the dirt around several dead horses. Allegedly, a horse can die of fright, and that's what happened here. It's also alleged that this fucker screams like a baby in the night. One witness claims a creature described as a werewolf was stalking up the hill behind her house in late fall of 2001. My stepdaughter and I were looking out the French doors to see a creature, black in color, like a big bear with haunches and the head of a wolf. I can't take any paragraph serious where it describes something as black numerous times and involves a stepdaughter. Thanks, Pornhub, for ruining everything. Well, that was the first and only visual that Cass County, Michigan residents have ever experienced. They can still hear it splashing around in the 20-acre swamp in the middle of the night. Some people can claim that it even shrieks. According to them, it has the scream of an infant, loud and uh, hysterical. Some believe it's the spirit of Cheyenne warriors. That was my first thought when I heard the term dogman, but that was... No. Anyway, but the dogmen were back in the 1860s. The Cheyenne established their own group of warriors known as the dog soldiers or dogmen. 
uh, Native Americans would spend years studying or becoming one of the spirit animals and taking on the mannerisms and strength of wolves or wild dogs fighting in a pack. Allegedly, all of the Cheyenne dogmen were killed off by the United States Army at, I think, Sand Creek. According to lore passed down from the elders, however, not all of them died. Also, according to a Tom Berenger movie, according to legend, some of the some of them actually shapeshifted into dogs and now roam the woods and swampland. It's worth noting that while all witnesses of these half-dog, half-man beasts admit to feeling terrified, they haven't been uh, associated with any death or serious physical attacks, and it's thought because the Indian belief they have to invite evil unto themselves, therefore the creatures cannot harm you unless unprovoked. Or they cannot harm you if unprovoked. So they're not bad if they are what the indigenous believe. Interesting. I've seen, it's on YouTube, so don't call me a crack or a quack until you fucking look it up yourself, but I've seen videos of these alleged sightings. Watch one in the middle of the night on a back road and tell me how brave you feel, and then tell me if you think it's fake. Um, I saw one where it was the scariest thing I've ever seen on YouTube. Like, there's spooky shit on YouTube, don't get me wrong, but this was terrifying. It was a 15 second video, shaky cam for half of it. Um, you see an animal, dog looking, big dog, crouched on the side of the road, and a car is driving probably 20 miles an hour up to it. You see it like 50 yards away. The car gets closer, the dog stands up. My mistake, the car gets closer, the dog starts running. And then the dog stands up. Car passes it, it stares into the car, and you see its eyes, and it runs in front of the fucking car, and this dude has it has it recorded. I... I was befuddled. I was beside myself. It was a good one. It... <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, it was scary, but... Oof. Yeah, that, that definitely... That gets me. like I was reading the original uh, Little Red Riding Hood story which was very very different from what I've uh, been led to believe the contemporary story is it's been told for centuries and it did not have a happy ending long before it was first written down it was a folktale uh, told for centuries as I said it was not invented by the French as most people believe by Charles Perrault uh, who wrote Mother Goose Tales and other first-person tales wrote that became famous as nursery rhymes, why not? Or children's stories. Uh, historian Robert Darnton explains the most most of Perrault's stories came from oral tradition, most likely through his son's nurse, where he borrowed the name Mother Goose. But the story of Red Riding Hood had much deeper roots, and it went through a number of versions. Even after Perrault's French version, the story started. Uh, it spread to Germany and England, carried by French refugees of the wars of religion and later conflicts. Till the Brothers Grimm wrote it down again in the 19th century. In fact, the story of the girl wearing red who wanders off and runs into the wolf dates back to about the 11th century when a Belgian poet recorded the tale. 
A long history of the story includes a number of changes that transform it from a dis- disturbing tale of can- cannibalism and pedophilia to a much friendlier version, Children Here Today, which has a happy ending. In some versions, there's no red hood. Uh, one of the defining features of this story is Little Red Riding Hood. It's her hood, and it appears in nearly every image of the story produced in the last 200 years. But some versions of the story, the little girl didn't wear a red hood at all. One folk version told in the 17th and 18th century France described the main character as simply a little girl. In other versions, the hood is made from gold. The red doesn't appear until the 17th century. Where did this most famous hood come from? Likely invented by the original Mother Goose, old Chuck Peralt. In his version, first published in 1697, the girl's mother had a little red riding hood made for her. It suited the girl so extremely well that everybody called her Little Red Riding Hood. After that, the Red Hood stuck around. Once the Red Hood appeared, people claimed it symbolized the coming of age or sin. The Red Hood made its first appearance in his version, Peralt. But it was such a popular detail that it became came to define the story and the girl. In fact, much has been made of the red color. Psychoanalyst Eric Fromm claimed that the Red Hood was a symbol of menstruation. Jesus. Why is it these impotent old men that are always trying to claim that these fucking stories are something way deeper and more perverse than they are? Turning the tale into a morality lesson for young girls who might stray from the path, putting their honor at risk, the wolf, in Fromm's version, became a seducer of young girls. I always looked at him as like a fucking pedophile, man. Red was a color associated with sin when Peralt first wrote the tale in the 1690s, and some folklorists point out the red color was often assembled that the girl had come of age, linking it to menstruation, blah, blah, blah. When the wolf tricks Little Red Riding Hood and eats her up, the message is clear. Beware of predators who will take advantage of young girls. There's a twisted part. This. Uh, the French version really drives that point home. In the original version, the wolf makes Red Riding Hood strip and climb into bed with it. The original version gets real weird real fast. Once the little girl is at her grandma's house where the wolf has disguised itself as her grandma, the wolf asks Red to take off its clothes. Take off her clothes. In the story, the wolf says, Undress and get into bed with me. When Red asks what to do with her apron, the wolf says, Throw it in the fire because you won't need it anymore. Oof. After Red tosses her apron in the fire, the wolf also makes her take off her bodice, skirt, petticoat, and stockings. With each item of clothing, the wolf says, Throw it in the fire because you don't need it anymore. Once she's taken off her clothes, she climbs into bed with the wolf. Then when she notices something's not right with her grandma, Oh, grandma, how hairy you are, Red declares. In today's version of the fairy tale, Little Red Riding Hood does not get naked with the wolf. The wolf feeds the grandmother to Little Red Riding Hood, usually. Before Red climbs into bed, the older version of the stories are gruesome, where the wolf sneaks into the grandmother's house, kills and butchers the elderly woman, pours the blood in a bottle, slices up her skin on a platter. And if that wasn't bad enough, when Little Red Riding Hood shows up, the story quickly turns into a tale of familial cannibalism, where Red hands over the bread and milk to the wolf and says, Have something yourself, my dear. There's meat and wine in the pantry. And he points to the blood and flesh of her grandma in the pantry. Red eats the snack, and the little cat whispers, Slut, to eat the flesh and drink the blood of your grandma. That's funny, I didn't know there was a cat. There are some strange parallels here with the religious tradition of taking the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ. However, for obvious reasons, this cannibalism was admitted from later versions of the story. Because eating human flesh makes humans go insane? Little Red Riding Hood escapes in one version using some shit humor. 
In most versions of Little Red Riding Hood, the girl never figures out the wolf's disguise, which is stupid. Since most people would recognize a wolf wearing a nightdress, perhaps Red didn't have the best eyesight. Perhaps she was a product of generations of inbreeding. But in one version, Red manages to escape from the wolf's trap, and once she's climbed into bed with the wolf, she notices that it's not really grandmotherly. Red makes up a lie to leave the bed. She says she has to shit and doesn't want to do it in Grandma's bed. The wolf lets Red leave for the woods, but he ties a piece of string to her so she can't escape. In other versions, the girl tricks the wolf by slipping the string over a branch and running away. That's some clever thinking. Is it? It's not. Even in Mother Goose's version, the grandmother gets eaten. Yeah, I remember the grandma getting eaten for sure. Mother Goose's version of Red Riding Hood is less gruesome than many of the other ones. For example, Red does not eat her grandma, and there's no long description of her taking off her clothes and throwing them in the fire, although it does say she took off her clothes before climbing to bed with the wolf. But the Mother Goose version still maintains some of the darker elements of the, the folktale. For example, the wolf snuck into the grandmother's house. He immediately fell upon the good woman and ate her up in a moment. Or it had been three days since he'd eaten. After all, if the moral of the story is to watch out for predators, the grandma was just as guilty as Red, since she was also tricked by the wolf. In the Mother Goose version, Little Red Riding Hood does not have a happy ending. Um, who wants a happy ending? I hope it stays dark forever, and I hope the worst isn't over. Fuck all y'all. In addition to the grandmother's death, the Mother Goose version of Little Red Riding Hood doesn't end well for Red. After the girl's tricked into climbing to bed with the wolf, the two have their famous dialogue. Grandmother, what big arms you have. All the better to hug you with, my dear. Grandmother, what big ears you have. All the better to hear you with, my child. Grandmother, what big eyes you have. All the better to see you with, my child. Finally, Red says, Grandmother, what big teeth you have. At this point, the wolf says, All the better to eat you up with. And at this point, jumps on Red and eats her. And that's the end of the story. In the Mother Goose collection, there's no friendly woodsman to rescue Little Red Riding Hood. The moral lesson is pretty heavy in the Mother Goose version, and it's all about virginity according to impotent old men that study psychology. At the end of the Mother Goose version of Little Red Riding Hood, Charles Perrault includes a moral. Just in case, children didn't pick up the message of the story. He writes, children, especially attractive, well-bred young ladies, should never talk to strangers, for if they do, they may well prove dinner, or they may well provide dinner for a wolf. Ew. And just in case his wolf analogy goes over the children's head, he says, I say wolf because there are various kinds of penises. <laughs> just kidding, he didn't say that. I say, I say wolf because there are various kinds of wolves. There are also those who are charming, quiet, polite, unassuming, complacent, sweet, who pursue young women at home and in the streets. Reading between the lines, Peralt warns girls that wolves might appear like gentle grandmas even if their intentions are bad. So he had a lesbian trip. Peralt concludes by saying, Unfortunately, it is these gentle wolves that are the most dangerous wolves of them all. The moral lesson for young girls is quite clear. Guard yourself and your cunt against predators who want to take advantage. In the Brothers Grimm version, Red fills the wolf's wide-open innards with rocks. One of the most familiar versions of Little Red Riding Hood's story comes from the Brothers Grimm of the 19th century, but even their ending, which saves Red and her grandma, has a strange twist. The Brothers Grimm introduced the huntsman who saves the day right after Little Red Riding Hood, or Little Red Cat, as she was known in that version, is eaten by the wolf. 
The huntsman finds the wolf sleeping after his big meal and cuts open his belly with a pair of scissors. The girl and the grandma leap out. Damn, it's a big fucking wolf. With Red crying, Oh, I was so, so frightened. It was so dark in there. Then Red takes over, filling the wolf's body with large stones. The wolf apparently sleeps through the whole process. Wakes up and tries to run away. The stones are so heavy that he falls down dead. It's not quite stripping and cannibalism, but it's still a dark twist for a fairy tale. There's even a sequel that the Brothers Grimm did where Red gets hers again on the wolf. Brothers Grimm wrote a sequel where she teams up with her grandma to kill a, oh, to kill a different wolf. As in the first fairy tale, she encounters a wolf in the woods, but this time ignores it. When the wolf tries to break into the house, the grandma doesn't let it in. Both have learned their lesson the first time, when they were eaten by the wolf. In the sequel, Red and her grandma lure the wolf into the chimney with the smell of sausage. In the hearth, they placed a large tub filled with water and cooking with a shitload of sausage. The wolf falls in and drowns in boiling water. Huh. The PSAs are like, or fairy tales are like the PSAs of the past. It's hard to imagine children listening to older versions of like the Little Red Riding Hood story. After all, today we generally don't encourage children to eat their grandmas, but Peralt's 17th century moral to the story is a reminder that fairy tales were originally meant to educate children about real danger, not just wolves, but others who wanted to take advantage of young girls, tricking them to strip and climb into bed. In a sense, Little Red Riding Hood and other fairy tales were the medieval equivalent of the more you know PSAs. Or, okay, I'm dating myself a bit here, but how many of you guys remember the uh, don't kill your entire family me, uh, PSAs from the recession? Oh man, these were, uh, for those of you that don't remember, they were fucking brutal. When the economy shit, they were playing these announcements on the PSA, or as PSAs on the radio and TV, like, there is still hope. It does not have to end for your entire family or for you. you and they were, I guess people were killing their entire families and then killing themselves during the recession and the fucking depression that was most of the 2000s thus far. And uh, they were playing these creepy PSAs. I'll see if I can find some. I wasn't able to find any of the good ones, but rest assured, they are on the internet somewhere, and there are no, there's no shortage of just spooky-ass fucking weird PSAs. Um, there were some I wanted, I wanted to play the sound bites from, but they're just wildly inappropriate. Just look up banned PSA, and you'll see what I mean. It's good shit, but it's definitely a little bit over the top. But on that note, thank you all for tuning back in. I genuinely appreciate the support, and thank you very much for continuing to spread the word, for tuning back in, and for telling your friends and family, because it's very much appreciated. Um, these podcasts will continue to be ad-free guaranteed for the time being, because I fucking hate advertisements. I think your time is money, and I don't want to dick you around for it. Granted, I'm dicking you around for your time right now, this little section where I rant for three minutes, but you don't have to hear me talk about fucking nothing with one of my friends for 25 minutes at the start of an episode, and then you don't have to hear me try to push and sell boner pills at all during the course of the information. So, uh, take that for what it's worth. I know I'm not the best at the podcast, but with your constructive criticism, with your help and support, I'm just going to continue to improve for you guys. I'm here for you. I have an open-door policy, so I encourage you to get in touch uh, you can get in touch with me on Instagram.com slash Duke 
Landis17. That's Instagram.com slash D-U-K-E-L-A-N-D-I-S-1-7. If you have a subject you'd like me to cover, if you think I'm a fucking idiot, if you like what I'm doing, um, please don't hesitate to get in touch. I appreciate each and every one of you, and hopefully I look forward to hearing, I look forward to hopefully hearing from you very soon. I'll talk to you soon, but in the meantime, stay spooky.